Hello everyone, this is Maria Lipman in our Pona's Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russian Eurasia, about the region's politics and about other Russian Eurasia related topics. About one year ago, I invited two guests, Sergei Kudelia and Georgi Kasyanov, to talk about Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky's first year in office. Sergei Kudeli is Associate Professor of Political Science at Baylor University. Georgi Kasyanov is the head of the Department of Contemporary History and Politics at the Institute of the History of Ukraine of the National Academy of Sciences. I decided to invite them again now to talk about the past year, about major developments in Ukraine and President Zelensky's two-year record. It's been another difficult and turbulent year in Ukraine, a country where political turbulence is a chronic condition what with two revolutions and multiple political crises repeatedly leading to early elections. The spring of 2021 has been especially tense. The Russian military buildup on the Ukrainian border gave rise to serious fears of another bloody war. Domestically, President Zelensky launched an offensive on his adversary Viktor Medvedchuk, a powerful political figure with strong political connections to Russia and personal ties to President Putin. Major international developments, such as the change of the administration in the United States and further deterioration of Russia's relations with the West and the U.S., also have strong bearing on the situation in Ukraine. I will discuss these issues with my guests today. Hello, Sergei. Hello, Maria. Hello, Georgi. How are you? And my first question goes to both of you. Actually, a year ago, both of you sounded strongly critical of Zelensky's performance. And when I asked you about whether you can think of any Zelensky's achievements, you struggled to answer, but still came up with something. I will remind you what you said. Georgi, you mentioned the exchange of prisoners with Russia and uh, Zelensky's commitment to renew talks with Russia in the Normandy format. And Sergei spoke about Zelensky's reasonably high ranking still at that point which meant that in the eyes of Ukrainians, Zelensky did at least something right, you said. So a significant part of Ukrainians can think of him as their man, as representing their interests. How would each of you answer the question about Zelensky's achievements over the past year since our last conversation? Sergei, would you start? Sure, Maria. I think the main achievement that we've seen so far is maintaining relative economic stability in the midst, of course, of, of this major public health emergency. If I were to look at the Ukrainian economy today, if I were, let's say, trying to foresee or forecast the economic developments last year, I would probably expect much worse economic crisis in the coming months. In reality, GDP of Ukraine declined by about just 4% last year, which is better than a 6% average decline for the European Union. The Ukrainian currency has remained stable. At the same time, it's worth mentioning that we've seen the rising unemployment up to 10%. Not surprisingly, the foreign direct investment dropped to the lowest level in five years. And Ukraine, because of the lack of reforms in particularly corruption sphere, it's still struggling to complete the talks with the International Monetary Fund on a new loan. Furthermore, even if the economy rebounds by the expected 4% this year, I think it will still mean that the country will basically return to the level of 2019. So this would mean 
two lost years for the economic development of Ukraine. Finally, it's worth admitting that there is still a lot of uncertainty about the effects of COVID crisis. Ukraine has the lowest vaccination rate in Europe and one of the lowest in the world. Less than 1% of the public is fully vaccinated at this point. Infection rate remains very high. Hundreds of people die from COVID every week in Ukraine. So overall, the country, I think, is still far from turning the corner on that public health emergency. Okay, Georgi, what would you say? Any achievements that you have observed over the past year? Well, that, that depends on the position. Where are you looking at achievements and what do you mean by achievements? It is a, you know, it's a kind of a popular joke in Ukraine that uh, when somebody asks you, how are you? And you respond, I'm still alive. <laughs> so for Zelensky, it also would work. He's still alive politically. Moreover, he succeeded in a kind of uh, mobilization and the concentration of power and using tools which were not used before. I mean, the Security Council. And, well, he just started recently. He started kind of proactive politics in terms of dealing with oligarchs and other tycoons. And so if we look at this from the point of view of Zelensky himself, it is achievement. As to economic development, as uh, as Sergei mentioned, that Ukraine, while relatively stable, I would say that probably Zelensky does not have a direct relevance to this. I think that in this case, we have a, well, paradoxically, one of the stabilizing factors is a great economy, and it helps to sustain economics in these complicated times. As to international relations, so we have this kind of stalemate now. And probably one of the achievements, uh, well, he lost this achievement, probably he's losing it now. But it was a six months of relatively peaceful time in the border with the self-proclaimed republics. So, of course, it's, it's mixed. However, Zelensky is still ahead in opinion polls. However, he's losing a lot. But, well, take into account that this is his second year. So we, we would say have a kind of balance sheet. So some losses, achievements. So you're asking about achievements. He's still alive politically. He started quite proactive fight with part of oligarchs. And, well, probably that would be the summary. And so. That's it. So, Sergei, let us talk now about the recent escalation of the tensions at the Russian-Ukrainian border. In your recent commentary with China Global Television Network, as well as in some of your other publications, including Pornars, you suggested that the Ukrainian government and President Zelensky personally bear at least part of the responsibility for this escalation. Do I get you right? And can you please elaborate on that? Well, responsibility for the escalation lies with the person who decides to escalate. In this case, it is the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. At the same time, if we want to understand the reasons for this sudden, very quick buildup of the Russian troops on the Ukrainian border that ultimately produced this uh, short crisis, I think we need to examine this event in a broader political context. And here, I think two factors played a role. One and unusually tough statements that started to come out of the new Biden administration very early on, already in February, regarding Russia and specifically, personally, Vladimir Putin. And the second is Zelensky's outlook on 
the future of Donbass. If you remember, we discussed a year ago that for political reasons, Zelensky decided to back away from early promises of seeking a compromise with Russia over Donbass. Georgi just mentioned that there was a stable ceasefire reached last summer. And I think the stability of that ceasefire with very few violations and almost no lethalities might have persuaded Zelensky and people in his administration that the so-called plan B, and that is the freezing of the conflict, would be a possible outcome, that it's possible to maintain that outcome until the next presidential election. And that is what I think Zelensky is looking forward to. But we also have seen that over the last year, the talks in both Normandy and Minsk formats have reached a dead end. Amending the Minsk agreements, as Zelensky proposed, proved impossible. Um, and so we've seen a continued diplomatic stalemate over Donbass with the West, and the West is losing interest in the conflict. And the heightened tensions near Ukrainian border, I think it, they brought Donbass conflict back into the focus in the Western capitals. Putin certainly could have had a number of goals when he ordered troops mobilization to Ukrainian border. But one of these goals was, I think, to demonstrate to Zelensky and particularly the West that they could not expect the Donbass conflict to somehow fizzle. Or he also wanted to show that the costs and the likelihood of possible escalation remain high. So the freezing of the conflict is, would not be an acceptable strategy. Now, paradoxically, the rise in tensions helped Zelensky politically. Uh, Zelensky was very quickly invited to Paris for talks with Macron and Merkel. He received a long-awaited phone call from President Biden, and he managed to divert the attention of the Ukrainian society from uh, the government's disastrous response to COVID pandemic by focusing on these national security threats emanating from Russia. So it played well politically, and once the order came from Moscow to start bringing the troops back from the border, he immediately claimed that he achieved victory in this uh, short-lived escalation and his popularity started to go up again. So I think in a way, Zelensky scored quite a few positive political gains from this crisis, but it also demonstrates that the Donbass conflict remains an urgent matter to be addressed both for Ukraine and for the West. Okay, you also seem to lay some expectations on the Putin-Biden summit as applies to Ukraine. It is true that John Sullivan, the U.S. ambassador to Russia, said that Ukraine would be near the top of the list on the agenda, of course, if the summit actually takes place. In Russia, this summit is routinely uh, described as bizarre because it can't yield any results in any of the points of contention. If I interpreted you correctly that you do lay some expectations, please explain what gives you even a modicum of hope. So, Maria, I think it makes sense from Moscow's standpoint to lower the expectations about the summit because there is a lot of uncertainty about what the Biden strategy with regard to Russia is. His State Department appointments indicate that he would be willing to pursue a hardline policy similar to Obama and key officials from the Obama administration like Victoria Nuland back in play right now. But it's also important to know that in contrast to Obama, Biden is clearly willing to engage Putin personally. Remember that Obama long dismissed Russia as a minor power and he preferred to see Putin isolated. So isolation was the strategy that Obama pursued after the Crimean annexation. 
He refused any attempts by Russian officials to offer some kind of a direct bilateral negotiations. And now we're seeing that Biden is choosing a very different strategy. And the summit, the upcoming summit, if it takes place, it would certainly serve Putin's interest in showing that he is recognized as an equal by the United States. It is true that the positions of the two countries seem to be so far apart on most issues, including on Ukraine, that it is very hard to see what tangible agreements could be reached during the summit. But I think the main effect should be symbolic. The two leaders should first start talking face to face and engage these difficult issues. And possibly they should start talking about the mechanism for conflict resolution that would preempt the kind of national security crisis that we've seen in Ukraine over the last month. Okay. Georgi, let's turn to Ukraine's domestic affairs now and the recent attack at Viktor Medvedchuk. What drives this attack and why now? Uh, and apparently the attack is not limited to Medvedchuk personally. His television channels have been closed, as far as I understand. The recent Ukrainian ambassador to the United States explained this closure by saying that those channels were mere propaganda. They were telling lies, he said, which to me sounds a bit comic. If that were a legitimate reason for closure, then few television channels would remain operating in the world today. Anyway, what drives the attack? Well, I have no idea. Well, in terms of analysis, I, I might say that it is a start of crusade against uh, oligarchs. And he started from the most unpopular and with a group of people who are usual suspects. And if you do something bad to them and you make them injured, so then you uh, reach popularity and then you, well, just uh, disorganize them. And in the context of Ukrainian-Russia war and conflict, of course, he is Putin's godfather, so <laughs> kum. Um, uh, it's double meaning, by the way, of this word, whom uh, it also comes from prison. So anyway, to a certain extent, it's it's a kind of also, once again, why I'm speaking about his legacy as a showman. It is a part of the show and quite impressive. Of course, in terms of closing down the channels and doing all this to the people around these channels, of course, it looks not very much attractive uh, in my eyes. I would not say this about uh, general public. So what he got from that, yeah, probably his popularity is growing a bit. But uh, the reasons, well, not very much clear apart from what I mentioned, the, well, the next uh, stage of the show. Okay, Sergei, what do you think about it? Apparently, the closure of the television channels, and correct me if I'm wrong, some encroachment on the um, independence of the Constitutional Court inflicted criticism upon Zelensky of becoming autocratic. What do you make of that? And how do you explain the attack at Viktor Medvedchuk? So, actually do not think that attack on Medvedchuk represents some kind of a part of a broader strategy of fighting oligarchs. Medvedchuk is not a quintessential oligarch. We have three major oligarchs in Ukraine, Akhmetov, Kolomoisky, and Pinchuk. And each of these three major oligarchs are quite secure. Their television channels are broadcasting as they did before. Zelensky's allies and Zelensky himself often appears on these television channels, specifically on Akhmetov's channel, quite often. So these oligarchs are very happy. 
And I don't think Zelensky would go as far as attacking either Akhmetov or Kolomoisky or Pinchuk in the future. Medvedchuk's attack is an attack primarily on a political rival. Medvedchuk is a leader of the largest pro-Russian political party that has been growing in support in popularity over the last year, that was attracting voters from Zelensky's base. And his base, as you remember, was to a large extent also in the southern and eastern parts of Ukraine. So Medvedchuk's party was attracting voters from Zelensky's political party. And at some point, it even was ranked number one in Ukraine earlier this year. So I think these public opinion trends were of great concern personally for Zelensky, who is clearly planning his re-election campaign right now. And an attack on Mr. Medvedchuk is an attack similar to what Yanukovych did with regard to Yulia Tymoshenko 10 years ago. Remember 10 years ago, Yanukovych, who viewed Tymoshenko as his main rival, decided to orchestrate uh, a show trial against her and put her behind bars in order to neutralize her political challenge. The accusations against Medvedchuk that have been publicly broadcast by the prosecutor general, Irina Venediktova, they are as grotesque and ridiculous as the accusations against Yulia Tymoshenko. And in fact, many independent lawyers, some of them are quite sympathetic to Zelensky, are now saying that it will be very hard for the prosecutors to actually prove their case in court based on the ridiculousness of the charges against Mr. Medvedchuk. So unless Zelensky pressures the judges, just the way Yanukovych did, and coerces them into writing or supporting some kind of a verdict to put Medvedchuk behind bars, I don't think we're going to see Medvedchuk convicted in the Ukrainian courts. And this story, because of that, I think can potentially backfire against Zelensky. But there is also another important figure in the story, and that is Petro Poroshenko. Petro Poroshenko has long been rumored to be an ally of Viktor Medvedchuk, even though politically they were at odds throughout the presidency of Petro Poroshenko. But early on in 2014, Poroshenko selected Medvedchuk as his intermediary in dealing with Vladimir Putin. And now the security service of Ukraine has been leaking the recordings of phone conversations between Medvedchuk and a number of key Russian government officials, as well as separatist leaders, in which Medvedchuk refers to Petro Poroshenko as a person who basically empowers him to act on behalf of Ukraine. So these recordings are highly damaging for Petro Poroshenko, who built his entire political career on being a staunch nationalist, a staunch anti-Russian, a staunch anti-Putin. So in a way, uh, an attack on Medvedchuk is also an attack against Poroshenko's base and an attempt to divide Poroshenko's base in Western Ukraine. And to an extent, I should say that this strategy, at least for now, is working. Because if you look at the recent opinion poll from the Kiev International Institute of Sociology, and you would see where Zelensky has the highest support, which region Zelensky has the highest support right now in Ukraine, you would be surprised to know that actually in the Western Ukraine, Zelensky has higher support than in the east of Ukraine. And his support in Western Ukraine grew to about 32%, clearly pulling away votes from Petro Poroshenko.
Interesting. So in your view, how does the electoral map look now? Because at the time of Zelensky's election, followed soon after that by parliamentary election, the map looked amazingly monochrome, amazingly for Ukraine. So how does it look now? To what extent Poroshenko is a rival? To what extent Medvedchuk and his party is a rival? And are the divisions that had existed before Zelensky's election and the Rada dominated by his party. Are those divisions back in Ukraine? Well, to a certain extent, yes. But it is a kind of paradox, which Sergei mentioned that Zelensky gaining more popularity, more and more popularity in the west of Ukraine. And it is. it also can be considered as a threat because uh, previous president who was most popular in the western Ukraine, he lost. So, yes, I would sustain this argument about the anti-Midvichuk campaign. I would not even say that it is a kind of byproduct or the secondary target to discredit Poroshenko. Probably it might be on the first place. I, I don't think that Medvedchuk might be a real rival to Zelensky in terms of presidential elections. But in terms of parliamentary elections, yes, they, they could and they still can get votes and form a kind of opposition. So yes, I think that the, the map of uh, Ukraine is back in, in terms of colors. It would not be evergreen as it happened in 2019, but I would not say that it is done. So he mentioned that, well, the, what Zelensky does is a prerequisite and first signs of future electoral campaign. I think that in two and a half years, people would not remember what's what happening now. But generally, the final point about this is that it's once again a rising difference between the different regions. And I also would add to this as a factor an external threat, because this recent mobilization, and I would add that also the rise of military rhetorics in Ukraine during the last month, yes, it is also affects the image of Zelensky in Southeast and in the East. So a lot of data about this, but I, I'm not sure that this data, sociological polls, is quite reliable at this moment to, to talk about the future, what would be going on in the next two years in terms of elections. So the situation is very uncertain, and, and this uncertainty goes just back. Because in 2019, green Ukraine meant great expectations and, well, a lot of trust. Now it is, it's much less trust and very few great expectations. Okay, Sergei, from what you've been saying so far, I get a sense that actually Zelensky turned out to be a savvier politician than you were ready to give him credit for a year ago. Or am I wrong? No, I think you're right. I think Zelensky is clearly learning on the job and he has good political instincts in some regard. And he also showed some decisiveness. So I did not expect him to turn off three news television channels at the same time and sort of do it in a very decisive manner. I also would not expect him to try to remove the head of the constitutional court. 
uh, and argue as if this is just okay. So many things that he does, they are clearly motivated by his desire to maintain some kind of political dominance that he felt has been eroding for the last two years. But it's still not clear whether these tactical choices that he make would amount to a success strategically in two and a half years. And Georgi, I think, rightly mentions that many of these things that he does right now may, may not be remembered at the time when there will be another presidential election. And for that reason, many analysts are now speculating that Zelensky may try to schedule an early presidential election at the time when his polls are still very high, when his popularity is relatively high, and there are no other opponents that have materialized that could challenge him successfully. He would try strategically to organize an early presidential election and win the second term this way. Well, early elections apparently are nothing new in Ukrainian politics, and they happened in more critical circumstances. However, this, of course, leads me to my final question. So what I understand that it's hard to predict, and yet soon after his election, I think Zelensky said that he wouldn't run for a second term, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, in January this year, he seems to uh, sound quite firm that he decided to run. He will run again. And so far, there has been, I think, just one out of five presidents in post-Soviet Ukraine who got reelected for a second term. What are the chances of Zelensky to becoming a second? I would like both of you to comment on that. <laughs> Georgi, would you start? Well, as I always say, I'm historian. I, I cannot predict future. As of now, Zelensky in the best position in terms of the prospect. What would happen uh, not in two and a half, but probably in, in several months, I don't know. If he were, uh, I would only say that if he would this, uh, keep this line of being hardliner, a person with guts, somebody who is able to make tough decisions in internal politics, if he would be more successful in his internal politics than in, in foreign policy, because, well, generally those who lose, they are more, more successful in foreign policies than in internal. So uh, if he will be, well, to put it simple, if he will be tough guy long enough, and uh, if he will succeed in some of his pre-electoral promises. So then he would have a, a good chances. But I, I, I truly believe that it is too early to predict the future. Because I just would like to uh, remind you that nobody spoke about Zelensky as a real candidate before fall 2018, I believe. So probably Ukraine would be able to present another surprise. Logically, well, we have a kind of trajectory among presidents from party member to accountant, then to the head of garage and then the tycoon and then the comic actor. So it is absolutely impossible to predict who might be his rival in the future. Probably, I don't know, probably Serhii would try if he would uh, like to, but he lives far from Ukraine. So, Sergei, of course, it is very hard to predict. I understand that. It's very hard to predict in Russia as well, and I guess everywhere in the world these days. But still, I would like you to deliberate on Zelensky's chances of becoming a second Ukrainian president to win a second term. What should we be looking at between now 
and an early or uh, scheduled election? Uh, well, so let me go back a little bit to the historical part of your question. Uh, and that is, you mentioned that only one out of five presidents got reelected for a second term, and that was in 1999. But also remember that Leonid Kuchma won in a very dirty campaign that was very much influenced by a lot of administrative resources. So in a way, you can argue that if there was a free and fair electoral campaign in 1999, we probably wouldn't see even Kuchma winning. So it is, in fact, very difficult in the country as poor as in Ukraine, and it remains a very poor country, where people have naturally a lot of distrust of the political authorities that are very skeptical of the government in general, that feel very much alienated from the political institutions of the state. It is very difficult in this country of a country to win the second term. Now, Zelensky, I think, succeeds in maintaining his relative popularity, which is about 30%, primarily because he still is perceived by many Ukrainians as a non-politician, as a person who is, out, is above all kind of political wrangling between political parties, who remains sort of a person whom they delegated to this highest office. And I think he succeeds in presenting himself as this public populist kind of persona. Uh, and it's a big question whether that he will be able to successfully play this act for another two and a half years when people would more and more get accustomed to seeing him as a regular politician, as just one among many politicians in Ukraine. And so I think if the public starts perceiving him as just one among many, his popularity will go down and he doesn't stand a chance. What's also interesting about Zelensky's popularity currently is that he doesn't rely on any single region for his popularity. In Ukraine, traditionally, we had presidents who either had an electoral base in one part of the country or in another, in the West or in the East. And even now, Zelensky's popularity is more or less stable across all of the regions. In the East, he has about 27% of support, 28%. In the West, it's increasing to 32%, but the margins are still insignificant overall. And so that kind of even spreading distribution of support behind Zelensky, I'm not sure how sustainable that is and whether or not it indicates that there is depth in his support. It clearly shows that people are sympathetic of him as an individual, but whether or not there is depth that would go through crisis that may can reoccur in the future, that is, that is a big question. And finally, when you ask about the possible rivals in the next two years, I agree with Georgi that we are not going to see serious candidates emerge in the next year or two because we've seen that Zelensky jealously follows political wins and uh, attacks immediately anyone who he suspects may be a possible challenger. And the recent investigations of uh, Kiev's mayor Klitschko is that sign of uh, Zelensky being very jealous of Klitschko as a possible contender in the future. So we should wait until serious rivals would emerge. But if they emerge, these rivals should primarily take a centrist platform. They should try to seek to take the kind of position that Zelensky took when he was running successfully in 2019. Because because ultimately Zelensky would have to gravitate closer to 
the nationalist Western side. He is clearly not willing to take serious steps in terms of resolving the conflict in Donbass, in terms of changing the nationalist overall rhetoric that we hear in Ukrainian mainstream. And that means that ultimately he would have to gravitate to the West. And so only the centrist candidate can successfully challenge him in the future, who is relatively unknown at this point. Okay, then I think I, I should suggest that uh, we meet again in this company uh, a year from now, and maybe things will get clearer. If uh, the prospect for Zelensky, and maybe there will be somebody else. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Very interesting. Thanks.